And inclusive community solar in other markets is referred to as low and moderate income. Some people are under the belief that only wealthy people can buy solar, and therefore they're the only ones that are going solar. And in fact, that just isn't true with community solar. What we believe community solar is democratization of the grid in its truest form. In fact, we're selling our power at a discount. So anybody, anywhere can buy power at a discount to what they would pay for it otherwise. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thanjan, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm really excited to interview today John Chamanis. He's the managing director and co-founder of Kendall Sustainable Infrastructure. John was actually on the podcast, episode 21, an investor's perspective on the U.S solar market. John, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you again. Thanks, Benoit. It's great to be back. Yeah. You know, the last time we had such a great discussion, I wanted you on the podcast earlier, but I apologize that it's almost been a hundred episodes since we last spoke because we had such a great discussion. So I'm excited to hear your perspective on the market and what's happening in US solar. What a milestone, Benoit. I'm so excited that the podcast has had so much traction. It's really testament. Great job. Love it. It's all due to great guests like you. You provide a great perspective on the podcast. And what I like too is you come from a general energy background first. So you really understand like all the principles about how the market works, which really I feel adds a lot of value with you investing in solar projects. Can you tell our audience more about Kendall Sustainable Infrastructure, KSI, and your background before you started the company? Absolutely. Sure. So Kendall Sustainable Infrastructure is a distributed generation scale asset owner. We develop and we acquire projects prior to NTP. So at this point in time, we own about 70 megawatts of operating distributed scale assets, largely in the Northeast. We do have uh, national assets over to California as well. We're located physically in the greater Boston area. And our mandate does allow us to look at other things besides just solar projects. So solar plus storage, energy charging, energy DERs, as well as things like water technologies and other sustainable infrastructure projects. That's very helpful to understand. Can you talk about your background before you started KSI? The short story, I've been working in the renewable industry and infrastructure investing since about 2005. When I started, my desire to work in the space was really kicked off by National Geographic magazine, Peak Oil. At that point in time, prices of oil were pretty close to, they were not too long ago. In fact, the past two weeks with Ukraine crisis, it's a terrible thing. Well, we had other political things going on at the time that was driving up the price, including the belief that we were running out of oil. I knew there had to be a better way. At that point in time, I found wind energy. And in 2005, wind represented just about 2 to 3% of the installed capacity in the United States. By reference today, it's about 14%. So I focused all of my energy and efforts into getting into the energy space, particularly wind energy. I worked with some regional developers, ended up going in-house with a subsidiary of Edison International, where I was part of independent power producer IPP that largely was a coal energy producing company. And they were taking the majority of the profits and putting it into new build wind projects. Through that period of time, they had done some natural gas, they had done some solar development as well. And I was fortunate to sort of get a seat on the energy industry from there. In 2012, 2013 is when I founded and started Kendall Sustainable Infrastructure. Briefly, before my time in energy, I studied finance undergraduate, but I really didn't want to work on Wall Street. It wasn't the sort of DNA that I had in my bones. So I became a volunteer teacher, like anybody that studies finance and doesn't want to work on Wall Street. (laughs) I taught science and math to middle schoolers. And then I was part of a group of people. We started a charter school in the greater Boston area to a high at-risk population. That's the long story. That's an amazing background. And I'm sure the principles that you learn from starting a charter school and being a teacher apply to what you do in the renewable energy space, because I feel like a lot of it is education. And I'm sure your background as a teacher really helps because I've noticed you are very good at explaining complex topics simply. So I'm sure that comes from your teaching background. Thank you for saying that. I'm sure it does probably come from that teaching background. (laughs) Even if it was magnetism and levers, it all comes full circle, I guess. You know what I thought was interesting? You mentioned how you own projects in the Northeast, but then also in California. 
Can you talk about what got you comfortable investing in a project that's not near where you're based? You know, believe it or not, originally the California projects that we invested in were some of the first deals that we actually looked at. Oh, wow. So we were on the early end of things in distributed generation. And it was a Los Angeles Department of Power and Water project. I was in Southern California prior to starting KSI. I was quite familiar with the market dynamics, and that's probably one of the major reasons. In addition to, we had a good partner on the ground, which for us, when we look at other markets, we're really a relationship-focused organization before anything else. A deal's a deal, and it has to be good and stand on its own. But particularly in our segment of the market, the sponsors, the developers, the local regional people that are doing development are just so important. And quite honestly, that's one of our most highly valued part of a transaction. So that's how we're able to get comfortable in other markets when we have common points of interest, mutual references and touches. And that allows us to get there. And that makes sense because the relationships are scalable. If you have a good development partner and you guys are comfortable working with each other, I'm sure the first transaction is always the most difficult. But if you're able to get through that, it seems like it's a lot more scalable. That's exactly true. And you learn so much about how people handle negotiations, how they deal with things when they go wrong, because 95% of the time, as soon as you've signed the papers on a MIPA, <laughs> the next day something happens that you hadn't thought about. So then you really get to see who people are. But if you do your homework ahead of time, it's not a problem. That's a great point that the documents, no matter what you think, there's always going to be something. And it's about how you're able to renegotiate as a partner, which is huge. Just being commercial and reasonable and finding outcomes that are synergies where I could give up on something that the other side might need or, or vice versa. You know, it's going to be a long term relationship and you really understand that and you give and take. Definitely. That makes a lot of sense. And how does KSI differentiate from other investors in the market? I think probably the first and foremost is we're a very flat organization for the amount of capital that we control and the breadth of what we're doing. We're incredibly flat. There aren't multiple layers of decision makers. We're also not a multinational organization where strategic objectives might change from time to time. I think that's probably one of the biggest advantages to our organization. If me or my partner are out doing a transaction, we make the terms. It's very hard to change on a term when you're the person that's the decision maker and the deal maker too. It's very easy to say, well, my boss told me to change the perspective here. I can't tell you the amount of deals where the commercial team at the junior or mid-level has approved the agreement and then it goes into the boardroom and comes back out with a very different feel. That's a position that I don't ever want to put my development partners in. I don't think that's a kind place to be. But I think that first and foremost, we have the luxury because of our organizational structure to be able to go in and say, here's a deal that we can do and then transact on that deal. The other ways that we differentiate are real value add during development. Mm -hmm. I think there are probably a few organizations that do what we do so well. What that is, is because we've transacted so many times and we're sophisticated and at different points in the value chain, we don't have to just sit back and put out a list of requirements and say, this is the project and we need it to be here at the finish line. And don't talk to us until it's at this point. We're much more apt to say, where are we at in the project to our development partners and how can we be helpful? Can we negotiate the power purchase, the PPA for you? Sure. We'd be glad to. Can we take on some of the responsibility with the title work? Absolutely. We'd be glad to. Can we help you problem solve along the way? Absolutely. It's a much more development focused mindset that we're bringing than your typical capital partners that are saying, dangling out maybe a overly optimistic purchase price and say, but if you just deliver it to me exactly the way I want, when I'm ready for it, you'll get this prize at the end of the day. And I think a lot of developers have fallen into the trap and it's easy to say, well, that's the highest bid. I'm going to take that all day long. And I don't care what they say. When they say jump, I'll say how high until they find out things don't go the way it was planned. We've decided that we're going to be incredibly competitive on a cost of capital. And I think that's an important differentiator that we do bring. We have an incredibly attractive cost of capital in our segment of the market, which much more is you're getting a team of sophisticated helpers that know development that can bring the projects across the finish line. And I think that's a rare trait that I think we have. I think that's a huge trait to have, especially in this market, when I feel like there's a lot of competition for assets. So that's a great way to differentiate. And then direct access with senior management to negotiate the deal is another huge differentiator. What we find is these development partners that we're working with, the majority of the groups that we have good chemistry with, it's an entrepreneur 
or two or a group of partners that started the business and they value doing business with decision makers. They don't want to do business with some junior level person that's going to have to get second guessed as it goes up the chain and they never meet the elusive ultimate decision maker behind the curtain somewhere. They find that frustrating. They didn't build their business that way. We've always tried to maintain a proper size that we can be face to face with real decision makers on the other side so that we have the bandwidth to support a good amount of deal flow with our outstanding team and that we can also be front and center in negotiating the deals. And honestly, it's just a lot of fun. We're just trying to have fun. At the end of the day, (laughs) I love doing solo projects. I love doing deals. And I like having fun with the people that I do business with. It doesn't need to be hard. It doesn't need to be all about ultimatums and leverage. And there's a group of people that live out there and that's what they like to do. And they can do that. Fine, go for it. We're not going to do business that way. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm all about having fun and developing solar projects. So it's great to hear your perspective on that. I don't know if you want to comment about really what I'm seeing in the industry where there seems to be a lot of capital in the market and not many good projects or good developers. Is that something that you're seeing in the market as well from an investor perspective from maybe like 10 years ago? You said a couple of statements. One is there's a lot of money. Another one you said is there's not a lot of good developers. And another wasn't a good project. I would disagree that there aren't a lot of good developers. I think there are a lot of good developers. Developers take different shapes and sizes. Some are two-person teams and they're some of the best developers in the business. And some are 40-person shops or 100-person shops. So there really is quite a variety. I think what we're seeing maybe is that there are a couple of things going on in the market right now. Number one is uncertainty. And I think that's probably the biggest thing. When people say there aren't projects, I think it's because there's uncertainty. I think a lot of people had anticipated the Build Better Back to pass and to get a 30% ITC. And they were designing their projects with that in mind. And then it didn't. And that's uncertainty. If there never was the idea that Build Better Back would have passed, we would be in a much more fluid place right now than perhaps we are where people are saying, well, I'm uncertain. Is it going to come or is it not going to come? And am I leaving money on the table by transacting at a 26% ITC or a 30% ITC? So we went long on safe harbor equipment and we've still been able to manage it in quite a fashion that we still have some and we can be more competitive in the marketplace. We saw it as an advantage. We went after it and we did it. Again, differentiating as the capital partner. But there's that uncertainty that people don't like. The other thing that we're seeing right now is the platform sale or the pipeline sale. This isn't a new rodeo. This is nothing brand new. It's new to the solar coaster, but it's not new to power by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, when I worked in Wynn in 2006, one of the highest price deals that ever occurred happened then. It's Horizon and Goldman, and they sold a portfolio of pipeline assets for an incredible amount of money to an asset owner. And we saw a lot of transactions that went on at that point in time where there was sort of this transitional event. So what you're seeing is a maturation of the industry, not a shortage of projects. And these platform sales represent some level of maturation where there are capital providers that are looking to put money out and they're looking to control development. And they believe that the best way to do that is to buy a development company. That comes with its pros and its cons. It can be a very bad situation when you stuff a development company inside of an organization that just doesn't know how to deal with development capital and develop risk. And that is the biggest problem where a company that's raised a fair amount of capital to be an asset owner then finds themselves in a position where they need to make decisions with respect to spending development capital. Mm-hmm. And what happens is they're very uncomfortable because development capital is very risky. <laughs> and if you don't have the structure right and you don't have the right alignment, there can be ripe for disagreement and challenges. And I think a lot of the capital in the market is not aware of that yet. They'll get there. I think they'll all figure it out in some shape or another. And some of these other combinations will be really good. Some of them will be very positive for the asset owners and developers. There is other capital in the market, not to be too goofy and call Main Street and Wall Street money, but there's Wall Street money in the market. And a lot of that is strictly financial. It's really run by people that are asset managers that don't truly understand power plants. They don't understand there's cash flow behind it and they understand that aspect of it. But what they don't understand is the business of operating power plants and the business of developing power plants. And that capital is going to have a difficult time and a lot of bruises. And there'll be a lot of developers that may be drawn to it because there could be the promise of a lot more behind it. But that's always been the case. I think you're always going to have different pockets of capital with different attributes behind it, which is attractive to different developers and the like. But we continue to be active developing projects. And what we've been able to do is because we've always been this value add, we've been able to move deeper into development stages, Mm -hmm. providing more and more value to our development partners throughout. And we've sort of internalized that, gotten much more comfortable and appreciative of it. 
Just that's our role. If we're going to create value, we believe creating value in a transaction isn't just paying the highest price at the end of the day, but it's accelerating throughput. It's decreasing deal friction and it's setting up systems and processes in order to repeat, rinse and repeat. And those are all things that we've been able to do in the light of the market. That's really helpful. And I appreciate you going into that detail. I didn't ask the question correctly. Like there's not enough projects out there to meet the investor's appetite. But you kind of answered that as well. Like all capital is different, right? And they have different preferences. And obviously with Build Back Better, everyone thought that would pass. It's taken a lot longer than we expected. And maybe it might take another form. We don't know. So those are all great points. You know, one thing that I thought was really interesting was what you talked about as a competitive advantage. It sounded like you were safe harboring panels as a differentiator. What makes you comfortable doing that considering like in the past, we've seen panel prices uh, decrease and sometimes it wasn't the best idea to safe harbor. Like what gets you comfortable with making that decision? We could have been wrong, Benoit. We could have totally just messed it up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> look, we did our homework. We tried to analyze the market. We tried to look at what were the macro events going on at the time? Where are we at in inflation? Where are we at with tariffs? Who's the political party in power at the point in time? There are a number of variables, any number of variables that when you look at them culminated, there's a risk of doing it. There's a risk of not doing it, but the risk of not doing it in our eyes was greater than it. We saw that inflation at some point would be coming. We saw that these tariffs, which were these tools of of uncertainty that were being utilized in the marketplace. And we saw, you know, strange trade relations with China that were all for us little clues about where the future might be going. Now, I would love panel prices to decrease. That would be fantastic for all of us. And the global price for panels is half of what we're paying here in the United States. But given where we are in our situation, it made sense at the time. And hopefully with another difficult decision that may come down the pipe, we'll be able to analyze it and make again another smart decision. One of those decisions that we've made was recently to get more involved in storage. Mm -hmm. I think storage has been in the press for the last five years and everybody's been going gangbusters about it in talk, but there hasn't been a lot that's actually gone on. And while we've seen the market double from a very, very, very small number, and it's really being drawn by some massive projects, right? 200, 300 megawatt installations of batteries that are funded by heavily subsidized through multiple different means that are sort of moving the major installations ahead. What we see is, is the value of DERs, distributed energy resources, to be the single most valuable kilowatt hour on the system. Some utilities have been fighting it and some utilities have been embracing. In fact, Massachusetts is a utility that's embraced it. They've come out with their Clean Peak Power program. They have put a program in place that says we value this and we want these DERs on the grid. Hawaii, which has historically been one of the more difficult utilities to deal with, just recently passed a rule that said anybody that installs solar on their roof and puts batteries is going to get an extra bonus incentive. They're incentivizing so strongly. And then in California, is that exactly the opposite. The utilities are coming in, the utilities are putting up roadblocks, and the utilities are making it more and more difficult to get these things on the grid. It's their way of saying, we're still here, we're still in charge, and we're not ready for you yet. In a place like Hawaii, that it's an island, and they have to truly pick the lowest cost technology to achieve their objectives, they're moving towards DERs more and more. So it's really just sort of empirical evidence when all of the masks are gone, all of the numbers that have been crunched in statistics and come out that we see in the Public Utility Commission proceedings and the joint utilities are putting out their positions. When all of that is peeled away, it really hits the fan and we're really at the bottom. At the end of our rope, DERs are the ones that are coming out to be most valued. So we built a strategic alignment this past year with a storage company where we've built out our capabilities in order to analyze storage in a way that other organizations probably don't have the capacity in-house. They may have to engage with a third party like STEM or they may have to hire some third party for that. We've brought that basically in-house in a strategic partnership. Storage is the holy grail. Everyone's been talking about it. That's exciting to hear that you're actively working on it and you have your own secret sauce that you have compared to other companies that are working with certain companies to be able to understand it because that's when you could come up with proprietary, unique solutions. So that's really exciting to hear. I know you said that you're a small team that has a lot of capital to deploy. Can you share like how many assets under management you're looking to deploy into projects? Assets under management isn't a typical term that we would convey out, but we're generally looking to do somewhere between 
50 to 60 megawatts a year for the next three or four years. And we're capitalized to be able to do Okay, that's helpful. I appreciate you explaining that. And what's like your ideal project or portfolio? I know you mentioned like obviously the developer is a huge part of that. But can you talk about what's your favored projects? Ones that make sense. Benoit, of course. (laughs) Of course, that are bankable, have a return. So that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) And where you could charge a premium for community solar. There you go. (laughs) We're going to actually get paid for our product as opposed to discount. Providing a product. I mean, this is a discussion that we had, if you didn't hear on the last podcast, where John basically talks about how we shouldn't be giving discounted electricity for a community solar project. You know, you're creating a service. There should be some sort of premium. Would you like to talk about that more or do you have any different thoughts from when we talked about this in episode 21? Yeah, I mean, it's just a philosophy on our business. We make electricity just like anybody else that makes electricity, but we get the privilege of selling our electricity at a discount. Just doesn't make sense, right? Why should we be discounting it? I think it's a matter of time. And I think you've seen those spreads compressed quite a bit already. When Community Solar started out, we were seeing discounts of 12, 15, 12, even 10% off of what the credit value was. Mm -hmm. And these days we're seeing discounts into the 5% as a standard. And in many cases, lower than that. So that theory that we've always kind of had conviction about is playing itself out in the market. I think those discounts do start to even get smaller as time moves on. Look, at some level, people like to feel good about having a discount. And if you need to sell it at a one, two, three percent discount, sure, that's all fine and good. But at the end of the day, our product is just as good as any other electricity in the market. So again, why should you sell it for a discount? I agree. And if you go through a third-party energy supplier to buy clean energy for your home, you have to pay a premium to that. But why do you have to provide a discount if it's from a solar project in your utility service area? That doesn't make any sense. I feel like us as an industry should understand the market in that sense. We're getting there. We're getting there. I think a lot of the aggregators for community solar that started out as pure play aggregators Either they've merged with ESCOs, retail suppliers, Mm -hmm. the ESCOs are coming up and these are sophisticated power traders. These are people that have been in the energy business. So they're starting to see that and they're starting to put a lot more commercial competitiveness into their offerings and the way that they look at their markets. We are coming that way. Just to go back to a question that you asked before, what's our ideal project? Just to detail it for your listeners, our sort of sweet spot is a megawatt to about 20 megawatts on the upper end. But practically speaking, most of the deals that we do are somewhere between two and 10 megawatts. These are projects that are generally net metered at some shape or form or another. Maybe they've got a feed-in tariff. Maybe they're community solar. Maybe they were one through an RFP. We are able to come in and negotiate these contracts finish them up. And what we're trying to do is work with a development partner in the late stage of development where we have not just one project, but three, four, five that we can do together as a portfolio. We've done a lot in states like New York and Rhode Island, Vermont. We've looked all up and down East Coast where there's a lot of new policies coming out or they've been out for a little while. Maryland, Mm -hmm. great community solar state. Pennsylvania is sort of like, we'll see what happens. It's on the cusp. But those are good examples of projects that work well for us. That's really helpful to understand. And I appreciate you explaining that. It's interesting. You like to use a concept called frictionless close. Can you talk about that? Is there such thing as a frictionless close? Is that something ideal? But in reality, that doesn't really happen. It would be great to get your perspective on that. 100% happens. And it's one of the most satisfying things in the world. What it is, is it feels like we are just another division inside of the developer's company. Sure. And that could be a developer, or it could be an EPC contractor, and they work in multiple different ways. We've got EPC contractors that we work with where we originate a deal or they will originate a deal. Either way, we're going to go into construction with that group and they're going to build it and we're going to own the project. And these projects are literally over-the-counter type of transactions where we've got the contracts have been negotiated years ago. Mm-hmm. We don't even look at the contracts. They're there to protect us and they're very important. But in practice, We've got a set of docs. They've got a set of docs. We know what each party needs. Last document is completed. It's signed. It goes into the folder. We're closed. Money moves later that day. And we're just off to the races with another project. That is a true frictionless close. And that can be done when you have trust in a relationship and in a partnership. That is our singular objective where we're always working towards with any of our development partners. And we've got some great partners that we've worked with for 
gosh, almost our entire business at this point in time. And each year we've added a couple more groups to that mix. And we've been really fortunate, I think, to find like-minded professionals that they're as interested in making a good profit as they are with dealing in dignity and respect. That just leads to this true, what we call frictionless clothes. No friction. Nobody's upset about it. It's a good deal. It's a fair deal for all people. And that's the outcome that we're looking for. As I said, there are different schools of thought on negotiation. One of those schools of thought on negotiation is there's three pennies on the table and I'm going to figure out how to get all three of those pennies. The other school of thought is there's three pennies on the table. We're going to try to figure out how to monetize that third penny because you can't just cut it in half with a scissor and split the value. So those are the types of transactions that we want to be partners to. When you find the right people, it's absolutely frictionless. We've done that with tax equity partners as well, Mm -hmm. where we've worked in multiple deals year in and year out with them as well. That's part of the ethos. That's what we're trying to do here is make the activities non-spectacular in themselves. What's spectacular are the hard work that all of the players play. It's about the team. And we've got an outstanding team that we have at our company. We're a small team, but every single individual well outperforms. Integrity is the first trait that we always hire for. And then we're looking for smart, hardworking people that want to have a good time. And you put all that together and you get to have a lot of fun in your office and with others. That's really interesting to hear your perspective on frictionless clothes and how it could work, not just for project acquisitions, but tax equity. And then about your team, people taking on a lot of responsibility and wearing multiple hats. That was really interesting to hear about that. Yeah. As a leading authority in the solar industry, life gets very busy. In addition to traveling the world as a speaker and for my entrepreneurial ventures, I'm a son, friend, investor, and entrepreneur. And when it comes to delivering a great sounding show for my listeners, I choose Podcast Laundry. All I have to do is record and send and the rest is done. They do the dirty work of podcasting for me. Yes, social media graphics, quotes, show notes, master editing, and much more. All I have to do is record. So if you're a busy podcaster like me with an engaged audience and want to free up your time to do more of what you you love, like going to the gym or spending time with loved ones, go to podcastlaundry.com to schedule your consultation or call 347-871-8273. That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. Can you talk about how comfortable is KSI with Merchant Energy? You obviously have like, you've done New York with Veter. Is Merchant Energy investors becoming more comfortable with? Shorter term PPA, something you'll look at? I thought you were going to ask me about crypto mining, Benoit. (laughs) I can if you want. (laughs) (laughs) And renewable energy with crypto mining. I don't know if you have perspective. Yeah, I mean, a short term PPA with a renewable energy crypto miner. It's brilliant. (laughs) I mean, come on, there's going to be bajillions there. What about the credit risk, though? Why are we even having this podcast? Let's just start a company. (laughs) Ready. Um, I'm ready to. Probably not. You know, <laughs> short term PPAs, it's obviously double edged sword. A power purchase agreement, when it was originally started, was intended to give certainty to the project finance company that was going to own the asset. Mm-hmm. They started actually in nuclear deals because nobody wanted to spend insane amount of money it takes to build a nuclear plant without knowing that somebody was going to buy the power. So the yeah. first PPAs were there. And then wind, which was the first commercially viable renewable technology at any scale, sort of adopted it as a standard order. Over time, places like Texas, some of the first markets where shorter term wind PPAs were happening. And the main reason for that was because wind projects based upon the merchant price for power see profitability sooner than taking a PPA. A PPA is a hedge in effect, depending upon how it's structured. And one side is betting that they're in the money and the other side is protecting that you don't want to be out of the money. You don't want to be paying too much. But at some point, you're always either going to be in the money or out of the money between the two parties relative to the spot price. Yes. A lot of net metering programs these days actually have quite a bit of merchant exposure to them. New York Veter, for example, has quite a bit of exposure. Many other net metering programs that fluctuate place like Rhode Island has quite a bit of price fluctuation. You're exposed to the rates and what they are is what they are. Now, either you or the counterparty can wear that risk. I think what the market still values is the steadiness and the reliability of having a counterparty on the other side of the table for that horizon. So if the question is, would we take a merchant PPA? The answer is, it depends. Mm -hmm. It's going to depend upon the market. It's going to depend upon the market dynamics. It's going to depend upon the price for power. It's going to depend upon any number of other factors. We try to structure most of our contracts with a bit of merchant exposure at this point in time. 
And community solar is a good example of that. Many times what you're doing is a discount to your credit value. Yes. And the credit value has a fluctuation. So in some regards, that's a merchant contract. What we're not looking to do is to give up right out of the gate certainty about who our offtake partner is. What we have done, and I think, again, where we stand out in the market is we spent a lot of time looking at natural gas and looking at power prices on a market-by-market basis. And I think we have very sophisticated understanding of what's going on there, which gets us towards the willingness to accept a bit more of the merchant exposure. Yeah, definitely. That's really helpful to understand. And that's great that you're innovating by thinking out of the box to accept more merchant risks. For example, in natural gas, one of the things that we believe is that we're undergoing a systemic shift in the way that natural gas is sold and traded Mm -hmm. in global economy. For the last 10 years, the price of natural gas has hovered around two bucks an MMBTU in the United States. After Fukushima, the tragic nuclear power plant accident in Japan occurred, price of natural gas shot up to $8 in it plus Mm -hmm. an MMBTU in Japan. And a lot of solar developers were quick to hop on that train, go over to Japan and develop a lot of projects, which great on them that they saw those market dynamics. What we did is we've been watching natural gas. One of the things that we've seen is that oil rig counts have decreased and natural rig counts have decreased over the last couple of years. Not just COVID-induced, but systemically, the oil and gas companies seeing that most natural gas extraction was not profitable, even at the 2 $3 in MMBTU mark. But they weren't able to sell their product at a higher price. At the same time, since 2016, we're talking about just over five years, we've gone from less than 2 billion cubic feet of exportable LNG mm-hmm. to north of 11 billion cubic feet of exportable LNG. From 2 to 11 billion cubic feet over five years is just an enormous shift in the market's reaction to the price for gas in the dollars in MMBTU. I don't want to overcomplicate things with what's going on in Ukraine right now and with Russia, but prior to the conflict, Russia was already turning off the valve to Europe, which isn't something that's new. They've done that time and time and time again. And fossil producers have the ability to control the valve, so to speak. OPEC, historically, they voted as a block in order to control the price of oil. But oil is a global commodity with a price at the wellhead in Texas or in Saudi Arabia is within two or three dollars at any given point in time. Natural gas can have a spread of 400 percent differential. What we're seeing with all these LNG terminals and with the changes in the United States profile for extraction is we believe we're headed into an extended period of potentially higher priced natural gas. It's hard to say where it will go, but we believe that we're seeing a firming up now. Does that just validate one and a half percent increase on the price of electricity long term? It could just be a validation for that. But what we do see is that commodity in and of itself is seeing some sort of a systemic change. And obviously higher gas prices lead to higher electricity prices, which is obviously great for the solar industry. So that was great to get your perspective. The other thing that I was thinking, especially that you were talking about merchant tail, was like, how long are you usually valuing a solar project? It varies so much, but what you know is that for a de-risked project that's in operation, once you've built out the projects and you've got a portfolio of operating projects, and I think the key here that I'm saying are two keys. Number one, not a single project. Mm -hmm. Number two, it's in operation. So you've got a portfolio of aggregated projects in operation. I think we're generally seeing a lot of these assets valued through sometimes the term of their lease. Interesting. So the extensions as well? That can vary. Yes. It can vary by a buyer. Mm -hmm. But again, prior to it being built in and of itself, even if it's a portfolio project that are intended to be built simultaneously or relatively close, we're not exactly seeing that same appreciation. But once it's built and aggregated in a portfolio, we're seeing a lot of that. Those time periods get valued. Interesting. And what's your perspective on whether Build Back Better will get passed? How are you looking at it? I know there's a lot of different variables. There certainly will be some climate bills that will be passed. Mm-hmm. You know, this administration and whoever succeeds, I do think that the political will is there. We've seen interesting behaviors by Manchin, and that certainly has changed the dynamic. But I think a well-reasoned, well-thought-out climate package or energy package is certainly going to be on the table in the next year or so. I totally agree with you. And I think there's going to get passed eventually. Maybe we don't know what the final form is going to be going forward. I believe it'll be more typical legislative passage of things. For some reason, we got ourselves all psyched up 
because we had $2 trillion bailout packages that came out. We forgot how the regular political processes occurred. I think we're getting back to it. I think prior administration, prior four years were just so toxic. And before that, fairly toxic as well. I think maybe we're coming into a bit more of a sense of reasonableness inside of our legislature where people are seeing the value of compromise and getting what both sides want. It doesn't have to be one way or the other, but a place like a classically red state, Texas or Iowa, they're going to vote. They get a lot of jobs. They get a lot of economic development for renewables. If it's the right package with the right wrapper around it, those sort of things can pass very succinctly. But I think it's when, you know, try to jam things down and where get some of these extreme beliefs that are often getting pushed today. That's where the, some of the challenges lie. That's a great explanation for that. What trends are you seeing in the industry? I know you talked about actually a lot of trends throughout our conversation, but I wondered whether you had any other trends that you would like to speak about. We're seeing the changes to LIBOR transition from LIBOR. And that's going to be an important piece in the financing market. And there's paper that's out there that's on LIBOR that you hope the transition is good. Going forward, having that new market and those new spreads, I think that's going to be very interesting in the bank markets. I don't think it will be as unified a transition as everybody is just assuming. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to be good for the bank markets, that they will be able to differentiate themselves more. I mean, when they're tied to a single peg, not that it's not important for uniformity, don't get me wrong, but I think in the lending to our community, it will be nice to see different products that are pegged to different pricing instruments because they move differently. Whether you're pegged to bonds or you're pegged to LIBOR or you're pegged to prime, all of these things move in different patterns and shapes. And I think for an asset owner, we want to be able to make what we believe is the most educated decision when we lock rates Mm -hmm. on a particular project. So I think that's an important thing that's affecting our business. I think the noise about crypto mining is sort of fun. Crypto has its own challenges. It's a risky thing, but if the crypto miners want to go out and buy solar panels, I think there's a market for them to do that and try to make cheap power. I think it does make a lot of sense at some level. I certainly do see it. It's so energy intensive. And if you can fix your cost, which a solar project essentially does, I think there's something to that. Will there be a lot of third-party finance there? I don't necessarily think there'll be a ton of third-party finance there, but hey, I could be wrong. I've been wrong about a lot of things. (laughs) Great businesses have sprung up overnight. When I look out three years and five years, not an incredibly long period of time, but I continue to just see some of the most robust macro drivers of long-term success for renewable energy and particularly distributed generation. I see that markets and policymakers are going to adopt more and more friendly distributed generation mandates. I also think that investors are going to continue to value aggregated portfolios of assets. But I still believe that putting them together in the way that we do is not a market that many groups can be successful in. I think there is a lot of blocking and tackling that needs to go on. I think that the institutionalized processes in a small organization are really important in order to control quality and to churn these types of projects and these types of portfolios out. There's some consolidation that probably makes sense. There's always going to be a lot of room for a local regional developer. Could be an individual, could be three people to go out and start a development company focused on distributed assets. And that's one of the reasons I love our segment of the marketing. It's always going to be a little bit wild. It's always going to be a little bit untamed. And that's what's fun. These are all great trends and perspectives. I actually recently became an advisor for a crypto mining company that's trying to use renewable energy. So I'll keep you updated with what I find out. Give me a call, man. Yeah, definitely. We'll talk about it and talk shop about it. Hearing from a lot of people in the cannabis space with growth facilities looking to use renewable energy, people will call us. We've had a number of those conversations as well. Incredibly energy intensive business in all indoor agriculturalists, right? It doesn't have to be Yes, cannabis. that's true. Cannabis is a very highly valued product relative to, for example, tomatoes. I've actually toured indoor growth facility. I couldn't believe like the electricity usage that's required. So it'll be interesting to see as cannabis is more legalized in the US. I think there's a huge opportunity for renewable energy to be involved, specifically solar and then obviously storage. I know you mentioned that you're doing a lot more in storage. It sounds like you're doing more standalone storage than solar plus storage. You're talking about ancillary services and some of these other things that you could profit from the battery. I can't share too much at this point. The secret sauce. But I can tell you, yes, we're looking at all of the above and working in some interesting markets where we're optimistic that there'll be certain programs that are particularly favored towards our scale of project. That sounds exciting. Would love to hear more as the platform I know is built out. 
that's great that you're actively working in that. There's huge opportunities. I've been looking at a lot more storage lately, specifically this past year. It's starting to make sense. So that's interesting to hear. These days, we still have the cost of batteries, which is you know, going in the wrong direction right now. But it's the regulatory, it's the policies and the programs. For anybody that is listening to this podcast, I can't impress upon you enough the importance of you and your organization being involved in the PUC processes where a lot of times great legislation is passed in earnest at a state level. And then when it gets to the working sessions or the working group sessions, particularly at the utility commission's level or DORs, there isn't the right political will there and there isn't the right might. Managing that dialogue is such an important process of success for our industry. So that's one of the areas that we're putting more and more of our efforts as well into being a part of shaping those policies and programs that come through. Yeah, that's great to hear. We're as well actively involved in different trade organization, working on the lobbying effort. It's interesting you mentioned that because I liked your question that you had during the Nicaea call about the roadmap. That was something that I was thinking about it. And then you asked that question, which I thought was a great question. I don't know if you briefly want to talk about like the New York solar market, because it seems like obviously you own projects. It seems like to me, you could correct me, John, if I'm wrong, that it's probably one of the biggest solar markets right now in the US. It's uncapped, meaning like as many megawatts can become projects compared to other markets. Would love to get your perspective on the New York market. So the New York market, it's a large market, but there are you know any number of things in New York that are not simple. It takes quite some time to really fully understand it. We're definitely past the point of bruising our thumbs. But what's going on right now is there's a new rulemaking process whereby there's a new block of incentive programs set to be rolled out. It's the sort of typical push-pull between industry and the Joint Utilities Commission, which is this interesting voting block of all the utilities in New York that basically get together and say what they want to say. And then the PUC listens 95% to what they say and 5% to the <laughs> other thousands of commenters. There's a little bit of jaded perspective in that. Yeah. NYSERDA has been an outstanding organization. Those folks work very hard day and night to convey messages. The objective with any one of these policies is stability and knowability. And if you have those things in a policy, it becomes bankable. And that's when business gets done. It's when you have uncertainty and you've got likelihood of change that you have a very difficult time bringing something forward. So there's New York's 10 gigawatt distributed solar roadmap policy options for continued growth in New York. And white paper went around and then there was a public comment period. And we provided some public comments. One of the things we talked about was Hawaii's leadership on DERs. And, you know, that is a model. A couple of other things that we talk about, you know, just the importance of in uncertainty while they're in between periods here, that they not penalize projects for starting construction. If you haven't been given an award, do start construction, you could still be eligible. And a lot of people are trying to hold schedule and trying to build projects. And it's this uncertainty that I talked about before that holds up development, holds up decision making. So New York has got a pent up lot of projects right now. They're buyers, they're projects. The projects are on hold until the NYSERDA roadmap is nailed down. So if they give clear guidance that a project that starts construction isn't penalized, that, that's an important thing. I think one of the most important pieces that we commented on has to do with community solar and what they call the community solar, the inclusive community solar. And inclusive community solar in other markets is referred to as LMI, low and moderate income. And what the idea is that is some people are under the belief that only wealthy people can buy solar and therefore they're the only ones that are going solar. And in fact, that just isn't true with community solar. What we believe is community solar is democratization of the grid in its truest form. In fact, going back to a conversation earlier that we had, we're selling our power at a discount. So anybody anywhere can buy power at a discount to what they would pay for it otherwise. So when a program comes out and policy advocates come on, they say, well, we need to have a program that's strictly geared towards low and moderate income or inclusive community solar. What we feel like that's doing is making a mistake. And the mistake it's making is it's layering on bureaucracy. It's falsely creating labels. And quite honestly, we think it's not giving the dignity to individuals that may fall into that category. Who wants to raise their hand and say, well, I'm low and moderate income. I deserve special. A lot of people don't want that. They don't want to be outed by that. They don't want to have to divulge their credit information, have terrible credit so they could get a benefit or, you know, divulge their income so that they could get a special benefit. It's insulting to people to have to go through that. And I think there are more roadblocks by it. And then a lot of these programs say, and every year you have to file a report and prove that you've still got these people in there. So every year you're going back to these people with this bureaucratic nightmare of oversight and a difficult thing to manage. And then between 
in New York State, they talk about, well, marketing, and we're going to market by zip codes. What are the different ways we're going to do it? We think that is just a colossal waste of time. We believe that if you sell community solar, everybody should have access to it. And this has changed from something in the past. But if you do away with any exclusionary requirements on community solar, you are therefore including everybody. So an example of that would be, you can only have community solar if you have a 700 credit score. That is an exclusionary qualifier and that keeps people out of community solar. But today, the way that the aggregators are established and the market participants are, they're established to deal with some level of churn. They're established to deal with it. And you can have a renter and you can have a short-term participant and they move in and they move out because there's constantly filling of these arrays. So if you simply eliminate the exclusionary marketing tactics, it therefore becomes fully inclusive and that should be the benchmark. So you're not allowed to market. If they prohibit marketers from putting on these exclusionary qualifiers, that would open it up to everybody. It would save a ton of money on oversight and bureaucracy, and you'll probably be able to get more diverse pool of people otherwise. I mean, marketers are going to market to whoever's going to buy. So if you can market well and effective in a particular neighborhood and you can market to the brand that they're looking to buy, you're going to be successful. It shouldn't be about incentives or labels. I think it's a really important point that we've put out there. Yeah, that's unique to what I've heard in the industry. And that makes sense. Like the less exclusionary it is, the more opportunity it is for everyone. And it saves a lot of oversight and costs. So I could see how that could be a unique way of looking at things. And you're inherently with the discount saving money on electricity. So everyone should be signing up. You know, it's and true should, democratization of the it's true, it, yeah, it, true, it really true. is. Yeah. Anybody could buy it. We're just trying to keep things simple. There's a hard way to do things with lots of rules, or lots of papers, or lots of complications. Yeah. There's an easy way. Let's find the easy ways. I think probably the only other real material thing that we commented on was that particularly in New York State, they really need to get aggressive on including PV plus bats yes. and have real incentives for that. You know, Con Ed is one territory and they're really trying hard in Con Ed. But you know what? There's a whole rest of the state, which is where all the power comes from anyway. And you need to have that storage at those other points on the grid so they can release it into the city when they need it. That's just the math here. You can't just have it all in the city. It's got to be outside the city along the corridors of where the power comes in. And they need to start thinking about it in a bigger picture that way. Most of the power, you know, Manhattan is coming from Niagara anyway. Yeah. <laughs> These are just sort of things that we're trying to point out. And again, the value of DERs, the most valuable kilowatt hour on. So do you think that really requires an adjustment in the demand reduction value, LSRV, locational system relief value in the VTER to be able to take that into account? It could either be simply a standalone storage yeah. adder. Quite honestly, at the stage where storage is today, most of the ancillary services are very difficult to value properly, mm-hmm. even given the most sophisticated wholesale power markets. What we need to do is we need to get the storage capacity on the grid today. Just the way the blunt force tool of a capacity auction has mm-hmm. formed PJM and every other market where there's a capacity market. So all the ISOs except ERCOT. It's a blunt force tool. You pay somebody to be there and they get paid a capacity payment annually, whether they turn or they don't turn on. Mm-hmm. In order to start stacking the grid, in order to deal with base load coming offline, you're going to have to stock it with storage. And it should be compensated through a straight capacity or some sort of fix. And then if you participate, then there's upside. But I think if you do it totally merchant, totally based on no benefits, it's a failed plan. Nobody's going to take that risk on that type of a proposition. Conversely, the LSRV, it's a good idea. The biggest problem with the LSRV is it's still a really big black box. It could point you to the paragraph or paragraphs in the legislation that shows how it's supposed to be calculated. But you try to put that together in a mathematical formula, you're going to find out that there are some assumptions that somebody's making subjective guesses on. And it's not just entirely objective. So I'm cautious about going towards the DR to the LSRV. And I think the DRV should probably get fixed. What they should do is take the DRV that's fixed for 10 years and just make it fixed for 20 and call it a day. Mm-hmm. People know what it is. It's given. I think the uncertainty associated with it gives a lot of people pause, heartburn. And depending upon who's doing the formula, you could come out with different answers. That's a great so point. So those are a couple of pieces in New York State we're trying to pay attention to. Capacity too makes sense to simplify it than doing LSRVs and DRVs for sure. Some sort of long-term cash flow on a general basis, right? For capacity additions with best. That's right. And if you want to get complex about it, you could put some sort of, and if you participate at some level in the marketplace, maybe there's some sort of a limitation on the upside of your participation. Those are better. So you've got the baseline, you've got some upside, but then they're sort of capping it at some level. That might be a better give than saying, let's go totally exposed, totally merchant on storage. 
And then they'll actually get the storage built on the grid. Because New York State, with no internal combustion engines rule that they passed within the next 15 years, they're going to have a lot of electricity that needs to manage. In a real <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see. And that'll be a very big energy transition that the state of New York has to go through. And investors like you, I'm sure, will be actively involved in that process. That's just one of the markets, right? If you look at, are we going to a hydrogen-based transportation fuel or are we going towards an electrification? It takes the average car maker something like seven or eight years to design a new car from scratch up. And every single car manufacturer right now has at least one vehicle with a number of highline manufacturers committing to 100% electrified fleets within the next five years. Because there's a long lead on vehicles and they've already committed, you know that the hydrogen transition, it's well far behind the electrification. <laughs> and again, that's a macro driver for more renewables on increased demand for power on the grid and then the electrification. So again, you talk about the little details, the little pieces of information that we're trying to pick up in order to make the smartest decisions or best, maybe make the most well-informed, maybe not the smartest. The most well-informed decisions, that's one of them that we've looked towards in setting up our macro thesis, outlook thesis. And all you can make is well-informed decisions. It looks smarter the way it looks after the fact. Things are just changing so quickly and exponentially, which makes it exciting. Which means we need more of your guests on this podcast so that you can hear more great ideas in a faster changing world. We'll definitely interview a lot more guests and get some great thinkers and really talk about these different things because just the energy transition is happening so quickly. It's exciting. I mean, it really, really is exciting. That phrase came out, energy transition, probably three or four years ago. Yes. When that vernacular came into the general public, you knew it was real. Up until that point in time, it was, yeah, there's alternative energy. <laughs> Do you remember that? It was alternative. I remember that, of course. Those they wanted to talk about was alternative energy. Yeah. But now it's the energy transition. Now it's real, right? There's a change in the way we describe it. And that's proof that we've entered into a new phase of general acceptance. Yeah, definitely. It'll be exciting times. This has been an amazing interview of the Solar Maverick podcast. I appreciate, John, your time today. If our audience, who we call our listeners, Solar Mavericks, what's the best way for them to learn about KSI or to reach out to you? Absolutely. So our website, kendallsustainableinfrastructure.com, that'll get you to us. We've got a great web form right there. You can reach us. I'm always available on LinkedIn. I love to meet senior people, junior people, people exploring, people that are curious. I love those conversations. So I welcome any and all inbound inquiries. Definitely. And we'll have it as well in the notes of the podcast. This has been a great interview, John. You've provided a lot of great perspective. I'm happy to have the opportunity to have you on the podcast for the second time. And I hope it won't be 100 episodes before I have you the next time. I'm honored, Vinoy. I really am. <laughs> and congratulations on getting so close to that milestone. I can't wait. I hope there's a party. There'll always be a party. It's <laughs> about doing business with people you have fun with. So we'll definitely Amen, be happy brother. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Thank you again, John. All right, Vinoy. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at reneuenergy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown.